Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Welcome back to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. It's Melissa Joy here today, and I am so pleased to be joined by Perth Toll. Perth is the founder of Life Plus Liberty Indexes, the FRDM Index, a freedom-weighted emerging market strategy. Perth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am excited to have you today. In fact, members of my team are a little bit jealous that we get to have this conversation and not them. Um, (laughs) We are going to be talking about investing with a weight or perspective that factors in human rights and economic freedoms, which is a lot. And it's something that I bet many investors have not tackled in terms of thinking about how they invest. So I'm so glad to have you on to discuss. Yeah, glad to be here and happy to discuss. Well, tell me a little bit about your story and how you find yourself today being the champion of an index that evaluates human rights and economic freedoms. Yeah, so I grew up in both China and the U.S. I um, was born in Beijing and then I came to the U.S. around age nine. Um, And then after college, I uh, went back and lived in Hong Kong, where I traveled um, to the mainland, to Shanghai and, and Beijing regularly. Um, And that is when the seed was planted for something like this, because in Hong Kong and in China, I saw the difference that freedom made in my life, how different my life would have been had I stayed in in China versus growing up in the U.S. Um, And also the difference that freedom made in each of these markets, the U.S. market versus the China market versus at the time, the Hong Kong market. Um, So, you know, there there were certain things that I saw when I was there that... um, that made me realize these things. And, and when I came back, I worked at Fidelity as a financial advisor for about 10 years. Um, during this time, I was in LA and Houston, and I had clients who were from China, from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, who felt the same way that I did about investing in emerging markets funds with large autocrat exposures. So the, the problem that we're trying to solve is that a lot of us want emerging markets exposure because that's you know where the growth is probably going to come from in the next decade. Um, but we don't want to be um, allocating to kind of these countries that have very poor human rights practices or just these political regimes that don't respect you know human rights and and um, and economic freedoms. So you know it's a way for investors who believe in the long term benefits of freedom both personal and economic freedom, um, to be able to express that in their emerging markets allocations. Interesting. So when you were a financial advisor and you talked to clients who really wanted to be able to express that, I'm assuming the first thing you would be talking about would be excluding exposure to certain countries. Is that that how it used to work or or what would be some of the options before you develop the indexes? Yeah. So, so before when I was an advisor, we didn't have anything like this um, and that's why we created it. But before, you know, there's only the, the popular um, index funds out there and then the other funds, which benchmark to the popular indexes. 
So all of these will have about 40% in China alone, which is a lot of concentration risk, regardless of the country, but especially with a country with that much geopolitical risk and um, government interference and high levels of fraud and inefficiency. Also, there's, you know, in addition, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Egypt, Turkey, and other autocracies. So uh, most emerging market indexes will have about, you know, more than half of the index in these types of autocracies. So, um, so that's why we, we made this, but, uh, but yeah, no, before, before this, there was no way that we could invest in a broad emerging markets fund without these types of countries. Now there are some, but that only excludes China. And it also doesn't really um, reward the freer countries. So our, our strategy is freedom weighted versus market capitalization weighted. So instead of using the, the largest companies and the largest countries um, weighted by size, getting the biggest piece of the pie, we actually use freedom as the, the, the main, the, the only weighting mechanism on the country level. So on the country level, the freer countries get a higher weight, the less free countries get a lower weight, and the worst offenders as far as personal and economic freedoms are excluded altogether. So what would be some of the quantitative measures that you're able to utilize, or how do you find the information that's objective to evaluate what countries offer economic freedoms you're looking for? Yeah. So objectivity in something like this, because freedom is kind of a nebulous term and it can be very subjective. So what we do is we use the third parties uh, data to give us the, the scores for the countries. So our data is provided by the Fraser Institute, the Cato Institute, and the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. These guys are the world leaders in freedom and econometrics. And before they had this data set, which encompasses civil, political, and economic freedom, um, you know, this is kind of a new thing that they're doing. Before they had this, I actually had to create my own um, kind of freedom quantification system, and it was called the the human rights quotient. Um, That's before there was any kind of quantified human freedom data out there. Uh, Once these guys created this, I just said, hey, can we use this instead? And I had already been working with them on um, the, uh, using their, their economic freedom data set. So they said yes. And so that gives me full third-party objectivity. Um, we operate completely independently from these guys, and they operate completely independently from us. So there's no way that I could influence their scores in any way. And so my subject of opinion does not factor into the uh, index at all. Um, just to kind of define some of those metrics, uh, examples of civil freedoms are like violent conflict, internal organized crime, terrorism, trafficking, disappearances, detainments, torture, and so forth. Political freedoms are things like rule of law, due process, judicial independence, corruption and transparency, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, um, freedom of religion, and so on. Uh, economic freedoms are things like legal system and property rights, sound monetary policy, freedom to trade internationally, uh, business regulations, and the level of government interference in private markets. So if you combine all of these together, and we do equal weight all of them, or rather I should say our data providers equal weight all of them, uh, because this is a quote by Jim Gortney, who is one of the founders of this data set, um, who said, all the freedoms work together Um, like the parts of an automobile. You can't have a transmission without a steering wheel. The car still won't run or won't drive. Mm -hmm. Um, So all the freedoms are equally important and they work together. And uh, 
That's why they're all equal weighted. And um, we just take the composite total score for each country. And that's how we derive our country weights and inclusions. Really interesting. So what countries are kind of rising to the top of the cream of the crop for emerging markets? Yeah, so emerging market countries that are very free um, and make up the top of our index are Taiwan, South Korea, Chile, and Poland. So those are the four biggest country holdings. We have 10 countries overall in the index, and we don't draw a line in the sand. So there's no completely free country, there's no 100% free country, and there's no 100% oppressive country. So we're not saying you have to be above a certain score to be in the index. We're just saying you have to be above your peers. So it's all a relative overall freedom score compared to your peers. <clears throat> so as long as you're more free than say, like for example, South Africa is in there, um, Philippines is in there, right? So Philippines obviously has lots of issues um, as far as personal freedom right now. Um, but they were more free than say Egypt or Turkey or Russia or Saudi Arabia. So they're in there and those other countries are not. So it's a relative freedom score. How long have you had the index? The index has been around for about three years. And then have there been any changes to the countries included? There have. So some years we have very um, kind of low turnover rebalance. Um, so the index has been around for, for almost four years. The, the fund has been around, the ETF has been around for almost two years. Um, the first year of the rebalance of the ETF or the, the index and then the ETF tracking it, um, we had no, no country changes and it was just going back to the original security weights. But the second year, so this year, um, it was a very high rebalance turnover. So those countries that are very low in our index, so they're on the cusp of being excluded, um, are always in danger of kind of getting excluded. Now we do have a rule that says it has to fall a certain um, uh, magnitude before mm -hmm. it would get excluded if it's already included in there. And that's just to avoid excessive turnover. But um, two countries did get excluded this year and two countries added. So <laughs> we had two drops and two adds. Uh, Malaysia and Brazil were added. India and Thailand were dropped. So, and it, that's basically, um, you know, Brazil, for example, the score didn't change much, but India saw a drop because of their treatment of the, the um, Kashmir minority, because of their kind of internet restrictions in places that had protests last year. So, you know, India, of course, is one that is very on the cusp and I expect it to come back in um, in future years. So... Now we've heard the investment story on a very, very shallow perspective. There's so much more. I know you could talk about it, but tell me about your decision to be the person that went and created this index so that there was a more investable universe with um, for emerging markets with personal and economic freedoms. Yeah, so I, um, I was working at Fidelity at the time and, um, you know, uh, I so I started out in the Pasadena branch in California. And so I um, used to, to go down the street uh, to research affiliates. So research affiliates was on South Lake Avenue, the same, same um, street as Fidelity. And I would look at, you know, I would look up to them because they were doing non-cap weighted indexing and I was doing non-cap weight, I wanted to do non-cap weighted indexing. So when I left Fidelity, actually, I, I called research affiliates and I said, hey, 
do you guys want to partner on this? And they were not interested at all. Um, and so this is my first year doing this when I left Fidelity. And let me just go back to leaving Fidelity. That was a really hard decision. Um, I, uh, I'm a single mom. And at the time, my child was very young. Um, and I remember a day when, you know, this, this idea, idea always kind of pummeled me. And it, so, yeah, so, so when I decided to leave Fidelity, um, a lot of that was, I needed a lot of confirmation. And so I had like 20 things that kind of all confirmed at the same time that it was time. It was like now or never time. And uh, one of those things was my child saying to me that she wanted to go back to her Mother's Day Out program. She had she had moved from the Mother's Day Out program, which was like nine to two, to a full time daycare uh, preschool, which was you know full time. So so I can go back to work at Fidelity and uh, after my maternity leave. And she she told me um, I want to go back to Little Fishers. She was like three at the time. So so I took two years off and then went back to Fidelity. Um, and she was about three and she said, I want to go back to my other school. And I knew that if she went back to that other school, that my time at Fidelity was numbered because it's nine to two. And, um, you know, that's, I had a temporary solution for that, which is my mom would pick her up after two. Um, but I knew that was not a permanent solution. So that was kind of the turning point. And also I remember around that time, um, I had been at Fidelity for about 10 years by then. Um, and I had some savings and I was looking at my, um, statements one day and I just decided, I I was just realized, look, this is, this is enough. Like, I don't, I don't need to make more money. Um, I want to do what I feel like, um, like I'm being called to do. And this is a product that I believed needed to exist in the market. So, um, so I, I eventually did leave Fidelity and um, to stay home with my, my child. And by the way, as a woman doing this, I just want to say, like, in the beginning years, I was, I did almost nothing. I was very slow, <laughs> um, and I was mostly being a mom. And so, I think sometimes as women in the workplace, um, in finance or any field, we feel like you know our life is put on hold. But it's not actually because we're becoming moms. But it's not. It's just a different season, um, and. If you're supposed to do something, if you if you find purpose in something and you have a conviction behind it, um, you will find a way. And for me, you know, being a mom actually was a big part of this work. You know, um, I, I was picking my kid up from from uh, summer school one day, and you know, that's when I was trying to come up with a name for the or a ticker for the index. And I told another mom friend of mine, somebody who had designed my business cards and some of my graphics um, for this. I was like, I can't think of a name for this index. Can you, can you help me? And so later on that day, she texts me from the supermarket and she's like, how about FRDM? And so that's how, you know, my mom friend came up with the ticker and now that's ticker for our index. So, um, so I think that, you know, as women and as moms, sometimes it's hard to think of starting something new and uh, doing something that's kind of more all consuming, but, and also we're, we sometimes don't give ourselves a break. Um, so, so, you know, for me, I went very slowly in the beginning, accomplished almost nothing for two or three years. Um, and then my kid went to full-time school and then I became more full-time. So I think for women, we should give ourselves a little more grace and just say, Hey, you know, like being a mom is a mission too. (laughs) It's, it's important work as well. So, um, and, uh, that's really interesting. Like the, the turning points and, I think there, especially for Gen X and millennials, working moms, 
do find, you know, um, obstacles in their traditional workplace, especially if you've delayed having kids and you've kind of um, shown up in the way that's expected, perhaps of um, extra hours and extra, not a lot, maybe the promise of flexibility, but the not the actual option of flexibility. And yeah. so I know so many women, whether they have taken time off or just um, taken big turns um, in their career, when they've gotten to that point of um, managing things um, and, and just evaluating what brings you joy and what brings you contentment. And is it the status quo that you've built kind of pushing um, kids into the picture of a life. So adjustments are often necessary. And a lot of times that does create some really amazing entrepreneurial dreams. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more risk, but it's also a lot more flexibility. So um, at at times it can be overwhelming uh, because there is a lot, but um, you also have maximum flexibility when you do something on your own as well. So I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that um, this could work with uh, my being a mom at the same time. So um, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, but going back to the, to the research affiliate story, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the, the obstacles that, you know, I faced was, you know, finding that first investor, the first person who believes in the idea. And um, I so looked up to research affiliates for the reasons I mentioned. So when I left Fidelity, I called them and they did not want to partner at that time. Um, they weren't interested at all. So, um, so I just basically try to learn as much as I can about the the ETF ecosystem. I went to one of the bigger ETF conferences where I met um, someone who had me go speak at their CFA society. And after speaking at these societies, um, one of the people that was on a panel with me, David Kotak, invited me to this thing called Camp Kotak, which is a a camp where like 50 economists go fishing in the woods um, in Maine with no Wi-Fi for like four days. I think they have Wi-Fi now, but at the time there was no Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> and except like in one spot in the kitchen. So uh, I was like, who does this? And so my friends were like, yeah, you should go, you know, um, Barry Ritholtz goes to that. You can meet Barry Ritholtz. So I was like, okay. So I go and um, I was supposed to, to drive in from the Bangor airport, but I, I was coming in from meetings in um, Boston and New York and I was tired. So I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just get a seaplane. So the seaplane is 20 minutes the drive is like two hours. So, um, so I called last minute from LaGuardia and I was like, Hey, is it too late to get a seaplane for today? And the seaplane company was like, no, you can share with Rob or not. So it's you know, <laughs> two people, two people per seaplane and, um, Rob or not didn't have a partner. So and Rob like, or okay. not is the oh, founder the of research, of research yeah, affiliates, yeah. the company that I so looked up to. Yes. So, um, so a big so, deal. Yeah. He's a big deal in the investing world. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so I, uh, intercepted him at the airport. They gave me his flight number and I was like, Hey, did they tell you we were going to be riding together? (laughs) He was like, yeah. So, um, so I met him at that camp. Now he doesn't go to this camp every year. He was only there that year because he lost a bet to Barry Ritholtz and he had to pay it back and he hasn't been back since this was 2016. So long before we even launched a product. So the product was non-existent at this time. So I told him the idea he ended up becoming our first committed seed investor for whenever the fund was launched. And then over time, he became, his investment grew, and now he's actually um, a part owner in our company as well. So once we, once we, um, once I realized that um, we would have to launch the fund on our own, 
um, he became a, a, an investor in, in the company because at that point we needed um, operating capital. Well, so, and and the idea of an investment process and um, creating something versus actually making it happen, getting to the point where you know, you're launching something. There's so many things in between in terms of the architecture of building an investment product like this, make the right connections, have the stars aligned, just like you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the hardest part. And that's why I was so thankful for um, that interaction in particular, but also so many others that were similar that showed me, hey, this is something that's bigger than you. Um, People resonate with the idea of freedom and it's, it's, um, it's not something that you yourself could orchestrate. So, I mean, I definitely tried to orchestrate um, working with Rob and I couldn't. And uh, it happened in a way that, that let me know that it wasn't me that was going to be, yeah, th- that was basically beyond me alone and that there are other people that will resonate with this. I think another one of the big um, early believers that really made a difference was um, Josh Brown. And, um, you know, in the beginning, that was when a time I was talking with lots of issuers and trying to get someone to launch the, the ETF. And um, it could easily have been, the IP could have easily been stolen at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that Josh tweeted about it was the bit, you know, the best IP protection I could ever have because, <laughs> you know, now that he's established it as something that we were doing, um, you know. It- so you're getting relevance and, and protecting your intellectual property by um, having other people give you the confirmation. And so now you have, in essence, created something that is not being done elsewhere. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So we're the first ones. I think that in the future, probably there will be copycat products. There always is an ETFs, um, but we were able to have, you know, first to market. And so I'm very grateful for that. And in some ways, perhaps you, you you don't want copycats, but you would probably like more people to be interested in the strategies and to build relevance for the index um, because it it will give the opportunity for, for more capital in, in freer markets. Yes, exactly. Good. Well, this path and passion has created something that's investable. Where do you see um, your work taking you next? That's a great question. I really just, I don't, I don't see that far ahead, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, and it's an early story. So I am not yeah, saying that there I mean, needs we still to be have anything such else. a long way to go. Um, yeah. What's I really amazing are... to be so early into something that I think is really has legs. Thank you. No, um, I hope that more people recognize um, the benefit of a strategy like this, that, you know, freer countries, they do perform. Uh, more sustainably, they grow grow more sustainably. They recover faster. They, you know, utilize their human and economic capital more efficiently. And there's less capital um, destruction, capital flight. So I think that um, in the long run, you know, there's a lot of benefits to freedom. Um, but also, um, it's a way for people to invest who uh, may not want their allocations or their investment dollars to go toward, you know, half autocracies in their broad emerging markets. And very um, murky um, questions about independence of companies, of how much capital ownership or control of um, from governments, et cetera. So I can totally see that. So yeah, I mean, just the huge um, 
allocations that people have to emerging markets, in addition to the huge allocation in China and other autocracies in these types of funds, um, kind of contributed to that. And so that's the situation, one of the situations that we're trying to avoid and one of the risks that um, we're trying to avoid by investing in this way. Well, in so many sustainable investing strategies, whatever their, um, you know, kind of overlay of preferences are, that is um, often the conversation I'm having with clients is it can often be a risk mitigator. In this case, we're talking about either geopolitical risk, risk of fraud, um, but that, you know, the same goes for paying attention to governance here in the U.S. So it's a really interesting way to flip things um, in terms of how you see um, you know, other qualitative factors or quantitative factors getting um, articulated into investment portfolios instead of what typically happens for those of you that are listening that are wondering, well, what's the alternative? Oftentimes, it's either the biggest countries or the biggest companies by market capitalization. So the 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 very biggest names end up being the very biggest portion of the index. So any of these strategies that we're describing have decided to not use that as their formula and they're using other um, other decision making, even though you do go to the most, the biggest, most liquid companies within the countries that you wait, but it, it's definitely different than a typical index. Yeah. So, so ESG and emerging markets is an interesting story, right? It's kind of a farce because you know you still have forty percent in China and you still have you know three percent in Saudi Arabia, three percent in Russia, and so forth. Um, so basically you have no guns, no smoking, no, um, gambling, no porn, but you have, uh, you know, 40% of the country that's literally committing our, the genocide of our generation. So, um, so yeah, so with, with, uh, ESG, I think it's best done in markets that have transparency of data that have reliable data, that have data that is widely available to everyone versus, and that's, that's confirmable. So, so to have confirmable data, you have to, first of all, have a free press. And you have no free press, then you have no accountability. The government can say, well, we're going to be the ESG leaders of the world, which China does say. But there's no free press to confirm whether they actually are doing anything or not. So, um, so yeah, with, with emerging markets, it's very difficult to do ESG the way the industry is doing now. Um, effectively, because you got to consider those kind of country level metrics, not just these security level metrics, which in these emerging markets are not transparent, not reliable, um, and, you know, tend to be filled with fraud and other types of um, accounting issues. So, um, so yeah, that's a, that's a, a challenge in the emerging markets ESG space that I think we're trying to address. Absolutely. I think it is fascinating. I appreciate your personal story. I appreciate the working mom inspiration or the single mom inspiration. I usually don't talk about that. I don't know why I did with you. I think it's because. (laughs) Well, also a mom, it's just a mom to mom conversation. And, and honestly, like the text with your mom friend who used to be the marketing exec and today she's got her own business that's running, you know, you can have your graphic design and um, she's basically, you know, thinking through your PR and stuff like that is like a very typical story for, um, for life as a working mom. So I think it's completely relatable and I appreciate the conversation and your leadership. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to seeing what's next. Thanks Perth. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com. 
or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about pearl planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter, also found on our website.